And I got to tell you, Joel, I didn't hear a voice. I didn't see a light, but I felt a burden lifted. I felt guilt lifted. I felt like something happened. I didn't know how to describe it. How should we teach the book of Revelation? And what can we do to bring a better understanding of good theology of the epicenter? We're going to ask those questions today and get the answers from our part two of our conversation with Pastor Skip Heitzig. Hi, and welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and today we're talking with Joel Rosenberg and Skip Heitzig to answer those and many more questions. Joel, thanks again for being with us from Jerusalem, and Skip, thanks for being with us from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah, this is fun to see us spanning the globe here. Uh, Sometimes I joke the sun never sets on the Joshua Fund uh, uh, ministry. We get to talk to people all over the United States, all over the world, and uh, it's great to be with both of you. Yeah. Skip. Likewise, it's great to be with you. And um, Joel, greetings in Jerusalem. Wish I was there with you. Oh, I yes. wish you were as well. Yeah. This is going to be a great conversation. And I and we are going to get to uh, the book of Revelation, uh, especially how you teach it and how you teach people to study it. Because I think a lot of people ignore it because they think it's too complicated or it's too wacky or it's too or they just, you know, they just don't know how to get into it. And yet there's so many important things uh, that God has for us to know, especially in our times. But first, before we get into the story of you know the book you wrote about Revelation and how you teach it and how you teach people to study it, I want to get really into your personal story because it's one of the great testimonies that I've heard in my lifetime because it's it's a little crazy for me who, you know, the way I, I, you know, I grew up in New York and you grew up in California and I was not involved in the, in the uh, surfer culture or the counterculture or the drug culture, but here you are, you and I are as, as dear friends in Christ, but this is not how you were raised. It wasn't obvious that you were going to be an even juggle pastor and a ministry leader, not just impacting, uh, you know, the 15,000 or so that attend the congregation that you and your wife planted in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but impacting the world and impacting Israel. So can we just start in Southern California and how lost were you? (laughs) Well, I was pretty lost. So um, I would go to school most days stoned in high school. And um, one day in high school, now this is how far back it was. They had a mandatory assembly for the high school kids in the gym and a Christian band came and played. Wow. You couldn't do that today. So they were not allowed to overtly share the gospel. They were only allowed to share songs. But still, it was a Maranatha band from Calvary Chapel. They set up. And for the first time in my life, I thought, these guys are Christians and their music is good. <laughs> I don't get it. I mean, it's great music. I wanted to hear more. So there was a concert that night. And so they were allowed to sing and share about their concert. Uh, I was able to go and hear them, and that's when they were sharing the truth. Mm-hmm. But it was that event and a friend of mine named Gino Geraci, yes. Yes. who was a year younger in high school, but he was a little bit crazy. He would read people's fortunes and, and read tarot cards and and got me involved in astral projection and a number of other weird things. By the way, for, for those uh, in our audience who don't know Gino, Gino is the pastor of 
my parents uh, in in uh, the Denver, Colorado area. But he's also Jewish on one side and Italian on his other side, right? Obviously, the Geraci is Italian. Uh, his mom's side is Jewish, but he 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 loves to say to me that he's Jewish and Italian. So when he walks past a bank, he's not sure whether he should buy it or rob it. Uh, <laughs> but that'll just give you a little insight to the humor of Gina Duresi. Okay, but now let's dial back. He's your friend. He's lost. He's right. as lost as you are. And what happens? Yeah. And he gave his life to Christ during that time, during high school. And he was instrumental in talking to me. And the way he came to faith in Christ is he went to a tent experience at Calvary Chapel during the Jesus Revolution. The tent was set up. A Maranatha band was playing. Tom Stipe was preaching. Gino went forward and gave his life to Christ. It's like in the in Greg Laurie's movie, right? Yeah. Maybe we were in the tent. Uh, exactly. It's the same period of time, roughly. Right. It was. And I had gone to that tent. I listened to that same music. Gino went forward, and that was a Saturday, a Saturday night he gave his life to Christ. I had met with him Saturday during the day. We were smoking marijuana together in his bedroom. Then he gets saved Saturday night. Wow. Sunday, I go to his house, and he tells me that unless I accept Christ, I'm going to hell. <laughs> Whoa. And it's like, what? <laughs> how does that happen? One day. I mean, how did you? Yeah, one day. So I was so mad, and I grabbed him. And I threw him up against the wall and I said, nobody can change that quickly. Mm. You can't one day tell me that, you know, I should smoke marijuana with you. And then the next day I'm going to hell unless I accept Christ. Wow. That, that, what right do you have? And I, and I basically said, never tell me that again. Mm. I was angry. And, and you're also taller than him. So that might have been a, a little I, bit intimidating. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and I use that to my advantage yeah, in my sure. unsafe days. <laughs> So, so that was the beginning for me uh, of of hearing a, a message of the gospel and from my friend. And what year and was this? Did you recall specifically? This was 1973 because okay. later on that year I gave my life to Christ. Mm. But I had left Southern California. I went up to my brother's house in San Jose, California. Okay. And I was going to go to college. I had signed up for college. I got a job. And one afternoon I'm watching television. I'm alone in my brother's apartment watching television. And I was just killing time. That's all I was doing. I, I turn on the TV and Billy Graham is on television giving a gospel message in some stadium somewhere. And my father told me, you should listen to Billy Graham. He has some good things to say. And if you want to be a public speaker, he's really good at that. So I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to go grab a beer out of the refrigerator, which is an interesting combination, <laughs> Billy Graham and a beer. But that was my experience. So that afternoon. That was better than marijuana. So, okay, so that was progress, maybe. <laughs> well, and that's world. debatable. Okay, Not everybody okay. would agree with okay, that. Okay, fair enough. But um, I was watching Billy on an afternoon in the summer around July. Go ahead, give the birthday. impression. I know you can okay, do it. Okay, so, so he says he's, he's sharing with people, and I'm listening, and I'm going, this makes sense more than ever before. Not what Gino said, not what anybody sang about, but what he is saying I need to do. And I'm glad I'm not at that stadium. If I was in that stadium, I would go on the field and I would pray that prayer like these people are doing. But I'm safe. I'm behind a TV and I'm about ready to turn off the television. And he turns right to the camera. He says, and if you're watching my television, you can know Christ. You can pray this prayer. And I did. I prayed that wow. prayer. Oh, wow. And I, I, mm. it, it was a simple, I remember the prayer wasn't a great prayer. It was something like, I don't know why you would want me. 
I don't know why you would give your son for me. It makes no sense. seems like it's not a good deal on your end, but it's a great deal on my end. So I'm yours. It was a simple prayer like that. Wow. And, and I got to tell you, Joel, I didn't hear a voice. I didn't see a light, but I felt a burden lifted. I felt guilt lifted. I felt like I, I something happened. I didn't know how to describe it. And when I went back home down south to Southern California, a friend of mine, not Gino, but this time his name was Dino. Okay. Dino was a neighbor of mine. Dino I have all these crazy Italian friends. <laughs> and uh, Me too. And Dino, Dino Webster said to me, hey, Heitzig, have you been born again? And I said, where did you get that phrase? He goes, what are you talking about? I said, you just use, what did you say, born again? I said, whoever said that, that's brilliant. That's exactly what I feel like. I feel like I've been born all over again. Wow. He said, well, that's what Jesus said. You must be born again. Mm. Well, I'd never heard that phrase before he told me wow. that. And I got to say, that's exactly what the experience felt like. I was a rebirth. Wow. So that was 1973 in the summer. It was a few months after Gino first shared with me, but um, that began my spiritual walk. That's wow. so cool. 50 uh, years. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. So just talk a little bit uh, about how you began to develop a passion, a, a hunger for the scriptures, because then that'll get us up to, you know, we won't go through, unfortunately, the whole story today about how you actually entered the ministry and, and planted this wonderful church. And But I, I do want, before we get up to how you teach people how to study the Bible and specifically a challenging book, an important book like the book of Revelation. I still I want you to go from I'm lost and now I get saved and now I'm born again. But how did you begin to develop this this hunger to know the word of God and and to believe that it's understandable? You know, I, I meet many people yeah. um, who are like, you know, unless you have a priest or a theological degree, you can't understand the Bible. But that's just not true. That's what I thought. Yeah. That's exactly how I believed. I believe that because I grew up in a church where the priest did interpret the Bible, and we didn't read the Bible. We read a little book called a Missal, and it was a liturgical formula with prayers and readings from the gospel and a few different passages from the scripture. But Catholics, we didn't know our Bibles. We didn't read the Bible. Hmm. Suddenly, I was given a Bible. I didn't know what to do with it. I go, well, how does this thing work? <laughs> you plug it in? What? And uh, somebody gave me a Bible, and then I started going to Calvary Chapel. Hmm. And that's what Chuck Smith did. He taught the Bible. Well, I couldn't get enough of this. First of all, Chuck had this smile. It was like a 500-watt smile that filled the room with joy. Mm. And he would just simply open the scriptures, sit on a stool and verse by verse teach it. And I just, I wanted more of that. Yeah. And so I, I I couldn't get enough. That was the first exposure. And then I was told by friends, you need to start reading this book on your own. So I started reading the Bible. Honestly, I started in Matthew, made it to Mark, and I'm going, okay, I read this. He's repeating himself, got to Luke. Okay, these people are kind of like repeating each other. And, and um, But I just followed along, and I decided, okay, I got to put certain things into practice that I'm reading. So what my first days of being a Christian, Joel, I was still taking drugs and praying and reading my Bible wow. because I didn't see anything morally wrong mm -hmm. with any of those practices until I read something in the Gospel of Matthew, mm -hmm. and it was in the Beatitudes. And my first Bible was a very simple version called Good News for Modern Man. Mm -hmm. I opened it up, and, and the Beatitude was, blessed are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. Mm -hmm. 
And I stopped and I said, is that my greatest desire? And I had to be honest. No, it's not. I've been doing these drugs. I've been trying to continue to fill myself. I somehow feel maybe this isn't right. And it was that scripture. I I paused, closed my Bible, took my drug stash, went to the bathroom, flushed it down the toilet and said, never again. Wow. And, um, and so that was a direct result from finding something mm-hmm. in the Bible that I just felt like the Holy Spirit was using that text to tell me I needed to change. Mm-hmm. So that, that, was, that was sort of the beginning of read the Bible, apply the Bible, and grow in your faith. Yeah. When was the first time well, – sorry, one more question, Carl. I, I know we're heading yeah. to a break, but um, when was the first time you heard the book of Revelation taught to you? Oh, it was probably a couple years after that. It wasn't long after that. I mean, I knew it was there. I didn't understand it. I was involved in some of the communes, these house ministries that Calvary Chapel had, where you had Bible studies going on. People lived together uh, in a very uh, moral way, but um, uh, it was a, it was a place of discipleship. Yeah. It was there I first was exposed to the Book of Revelation. Wow. You know, I think it's it's really important too at this point, Skip, to, to just emphasize the fact that just reading the Bible and understanding that those words mean what they say, and the understanding and interpretation of that is not some. You don't need a you know seminary degree. You don't need necessarily all of that. You were literally a brand new baby believer, and you were able to say this word means something. It has an impact. Yeah. It's asking me a question, yeah. and I've got to answer that. I think that's really, really powerful. And I think it's a great principle yeah, to begin it, with uh, when we study Scripture, right? And having believers around you, community around sure. you, accountability. I was I mentioned this house ministry. These were young people living together who had come from the streets or a drug past or whatever. And here we are together reading the Bible, and we're challenging one another with the interpretation. That's so healthy to have a group of people around you to do that. Yeah, no question about it. I think that, I know Joel and I have talked about the uh, the, the Jesus Revolution movie and just how many of these conversations that we've had really point back to that sort of fresh wind that God was blowing through that counterculture. And 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 I don't know, but I, I still feel like we're in a moment like that right now, that there is so much emptiness and, and desperation in our young people, especially, mm. they're so clamoring yeah. for reality and and truth. And uh, and I, I just love your testimony, which points us to that. You know, a young man searching, maybe even not realizing the depth of the search, but then finding through Billy Graham and through the Word of God, uh, the the pathway that that's really blessed. And I can say this, I think for sure, millions uh, through your books and your radio and your ministry, uh, your your pastoral uh, ministry and, and various other things. So uh, that's pretty cool. And, and I hope we're in that yeah. same moment. Maybe people even listening to this right now uh, might be the next Skip Heitzig in the next 50 years, you know, that mm-hmm. that uh, continues to, to move this forward. That's my prayer. So, And Carl, I have hope. I see that hunger in a lot of kids and I see a lot of that generation, a young generation coming to Christ. We just had uh, people come forward at all of our services this last weekend. And so many of them are young and they're, it's like a fresh hunger. It's sort of like my culture. They don't trust politicians anymore. They don't trust uh, uh, the narrative in culture anymore, but they're looking for something. And when they find that Jesus is the best friend they could ever have, who will save them from their sin as well. Amen. That's a game changer. Amen. We're going to come back after a quick break here, but we're going to, we're going to talk more specifically about your, your work in the book of Revelation and how to understand and, and really apply that today because it is so 
so crucial for our culture and for people's understanding. So uh, we'll be back in just a second. Sure. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Our verse of the day today is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Our prayer requests today are to pray for the church in the USA to embrace good scriptural theology on Israel and that young people will lead this renewal. And secondly, pray that this teaching will spark blessings for both Israel and the world and lead people to watch and pray for Christ's return. Well, we're back with Skip Heitzig and Joel Rosenberg. Skip, what a great, great story. Your testimony is such an encouragement. It puts a smile on my face uh, in so many ways because just that simple question, have you been born again? And to be able to realize, wow, you know, that's brilliant. Well, Jesus said it. I love that. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's really good. But let's dive in a little bit. You've written so many books. Uh, you've written books on understanding uh, like Genesis, and Revelation, Let's talk about the book of Revelation. And uh, Joel, I know you have some questions on this, but Skip, maybe it's an obvious question, but what draws you to the book of Revelation? And and why would you even want to tackle a book <laughs> to help us understand that? Well, first of all, I wanted to tackle it because the name Revelation implies it's understandable, right? <laughs> it's not something to True. be kept from people's knowledge base. So just that, you know, it's like, okay, this is a revelation, and number two, it's the last book in the New Testament. So it's the book you sort of linger on. And here you have historical narrative, the Gospels, you have epistolatory literature, but then you have this promise of his coming and the details of uh, at least uh, uh, the first part of his setting up his kingdom and uh, new heaven, new earth. So the, uh, the eternal age. So I was interested in Revelation even as an unbeliever, because hmm. I had friends sure. who used to take LSD and read the book of Revelation. Oh, oh and, you know, <laughs> not uh, recommended. They they not, not recommended. Recommend. <laughs> Put that in the, in the show because, notes. We're not encouraging that, just for the record. Okay. They would walk away terrified from that experience. Uh, yeah. and, and, and you can see why. You don't have to have drugs to get terrified reading the book of Revelation. What it predicts mm. are pretty ominous. Yeah. yeah. You wrote uh, a book, which I was happy to endorse. Uh, you can understand the book of Revelation. And I, I think that's a great book. And we need to uh, that will be in the show notes, how people can order it, because many people avoid the book because mm -hmm. um, 
they think it's not understandable. So I, I want you to sort of unpack the principle of the title of your book that that people can understand it. Uh, talk more about that, and and so how do you teach people to to slow down and and, and try to unpack it, and that it it is understandable. Well, I understand that people have trouble with the book of Revelation. Um, some people are just afraid of prophecy, Joel. Yeah. They're afraid of what they're going to uncover, what the, what the Bible says about the end. And because the book of Revelation has some frightful predictions in it, they would rather allegorize it. They would rather not take it as literal. Uh, they see it as a distraction. Martin Luther didn't like the book. Uh, John Calvin didn't write a commentary on Revelation. And they developed a viewpoint, an amillennial viewpoint, that denies the literal kingdom of Christ and a straightforward, chronological, literal interpretation, uh, what we would call a grammatico-historical approach to the Scripture. They have that approach in every other Scripture, right. but when it comes to prophecy, they uh, conveniently go to a different uh, paradigm. The language of Revelation is unfamiliar. We don't talk in that kind of language. It's in idioms. It's in signs. And so what do you do with that? That in and of itself intrigued me. It drew me in. It didn't keep me away. It's like, oh, I want to read this. I want to find out what it says. First of all, what it says, then what it means. I think that's why people are afraid for those reasons. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I think, and there is poetic and allegorical and metaphorical language. So that yes. easily makes people think, all right, well, then that is, it's not literal. That is in part because the things that are being described are so difficult to absorb but also for someone in 2,000 years ago trying to describe the ultimate judgment or series of judgments of God and redemption of the world that would happen at least 2,000 or more years later was so mind-boggling. You know, I mean, John himself was terrified as he saw this, uh, some, some of the elements of this revelation, and he was, found himself speechless mm. at times. And he, he, he had to be commanded to write things down, and he was also commanded to not write some things down that, yeah. that are things that God wanted him to know but not to share. But I'll give you one example that I find interesting. So in Revelation chapter 12, uh, we actually get a description of the of the nation of Israel and the role that it plays. But it doesn't say the word Israel, and it, and it gives a number of different uh, descriptions that people are like, I, you know, how do you get Israel out of that? And and one ex specific example is, you know, people are like, wait a minute, wait, it's talking about a dragon. I, I can't. And I tell people, Look, just slow down for a second. I, yes, when you reach a discussion of a dragon in the Bible, that could spook you. You could be like, all right, I don't get what they're talking about. This is like some sort of CGI movie. It doesn't make any sense to me. But I said, okay, but why don't you just read a couple more verses? And then they discover, oh, God specifically says that the dragon is Satan, that, that he is creating a, a word picture to help us understand how cruel and, and uh, devouring is the nature of Satan. Um, so what I'm saying is that the Bible, Revelation often interprets itself. You just need to take a moment. Yeah. And even if you don't get every specific detail, if you just start working your way through and saying, okay, I don't understand that, but but take a notebook, start writing down what what's the basic narrative direction, not what's every single detail. It's not that those details are not important. I'm not saying that, but yeah. I'm saying it is discernible to understand the narrative direction of what's going to happen in the end of the end of the end of days by a simple reading of the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. 
And not only that, you keyed on something. This is why I believe Christians should be reading the Old Testament as well, because Revelation is sort of like all the answers are in the back of the book. Um, (laughs) Somebody who would be familiar with Old Testament Scripture would understand Revelation easier than somebody who is not familiar with Old Testament Scripture. So you mentioned Revelation chapter 12. Well, if you know Genesis 37, if you had read that, and then you approach uh, Revelation 12, it's like, oh, I get it. It is Israel because that the only time that is mentioned of the sun, moon, stars is uh, the dream uh, that Joseph had that was interpreted by his father as, oh, that's me and your mother mm-hmm. and your brother. So if you have a, an Old Testament rootedness, it makes Revelation a lot easier in its interpretation. Yeah, yeah. and there's, a, there's a, a lack of Old Testament literacy in our age. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, in wonderful versions of the Bible today, there's often uh, cross-references. You can say, oh, okay, that at least the commentators or the, or the editors are saying that this reference is this. Well, let's go look it up and see if they're right. Mm-hmm. right? And, and, and that is helpful. But you're right. Someone who is steeped in the poetic language, the, the imagery, let's say, of the Old yeah. Testament will see Revelation much clearer. It's also important, let's be clear, that it's not Revelation's. People, yeah, that's <laughs> it, a sloppy way. People are like, oh, I, yeah, I read the book of Revelations. Well, you may have missed the title. Let's just go back. It's Revelation, and right. and just you know, if you're the you're the pastor here. What's the central revelation that John is describing? It's Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word is apocalypsis. It means unveiling. So. Uh, you know, it's funny because you bring that up. Martin Luther, the, one of the reasons he said that he didn't like the book of Revelation is that Christ is not seen nor recognized in the book. And it's like, I'm sorry, Marty, but you haven't been reading the same book of Revelation I've been reading. Jesus is all over the place in every single chapter. In chapter one through three, it's he's superintending and evaluating uh, his churches in Revelation 4 and 5, he's the lamb uh, before the throne. He's glorified. In chapter 6 through 18, he's seen as the judge of all the earth. In chapter 19, he comes back. He's everywhere in the book. Yeah. And, and, and just so, for the record, for those who are listening, you got two Germans, and they're saying that Martin Luther was wrong on something. <laughs> now, you know, he was right about a lot, but he wasn't right about everything. And this is why we're not yeah. – this is important. Uh, I'm using that as a joke, but I also – I'm trying to be serious – a lot of rabbinic teaching is that you're not in the in the orthodox and ultra orthodox Jewish world. You're not actually studying the Bible. You're not studying the the Tanakh, the the Old Testament. You're mostly studying the commentaries of the commentaries of the commentaries. And you're saying, well, this rabbi said this about Genesis 12, or you know, this rabbi said that, or whatever. And you end up at risk because you're not really reading the text itself, and then testing well. Do you think that rabbi was right? Well, I, that's not – he says this, but that's not what the text actually is saying. But, and, and you can end up getting the flawed interpretation of somebody mm-hmm. else when you're not actually reading the text itself. And in modern Christianity or let's say evangelicalism, one of the things that Luther did get right was we, we should get back into the reading the Bible for ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, other Protestants over time – made that even more possible for people. It wasn't possible when you didn't actually have a Bible or access to a Bible. But now that we do, the question is, what does the text actually say before we even get to what does it mean? 
And before we get to, well, what does it mean to me, right? So mm-hmm. what does it actually say? And often just a simple, clear, plain reading is clear. And then when you start hearing somebody say, well, no, that's not what it means. Well, now they have a burden of proof to say, well, you're like, you know, I don't have a PhD in theology, but I'm saying this text says he's going to have a reign for a thousand years. It says it six times in this chapter that he's going to reign for a thousand years. But then you have all these people saying, well, that doesn't mean a literal thousand years. That means a long time. You know, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Only a thousand doesn't mean a lot. So, yes, there are times that that happens. But but my point is, in Reformed theology, not only, but a lot of the emphasis is on what did the Reformers say? What did this pastor mm. say? What did that pastor say? Not that it's not important. It's good to know what Luther said or Calvin said or, you know, before that, Augustine or others. But it doesn't necessarily mean that flawed people have it all right. And this is just a, a general principle I think I want to lay out for people that go back to what the text actually says. And anyone you're listening to, myself, Carl, Skip on various passages, don't take our word for it. Go and see if that's what the scriptures really say. And that's true about the much more illustrious church fathers, because many of them were right about a lot, but they weren't right about everything. And that's an important thing for mm-hmm. us to remember. I agree. Joel, uh, Acts 17.11 comes to mind. Uh, The Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word that Paul shared, but they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things be so. But, you know, it's something I just want to tell our listeners that the book of Revelation is written in this significant language that is signs and symbols and pictures. And they ask, well, why is it? Why doesn't it just say point one, the return of Jesus Christ? (laughs) A, B, C. Well, because that kind of language, um, symbols and pictures, symbol is not weakened by time or culture. It sort of transcends it. And it creates a deeper emotion than just a didactic statement. Uh, It arouses strong emotion. You could just say, well, there's a dictator of the world that is coming. Or you could say he's a beast. Well, that that connotation is is much deeper. And so symbols create mental images that other forms of literature do not. So you're right. Here's John seeing the future. And I think by the Spirit of God, giving us language, highly significant language, orienting us to uh, how powerful a moment it's going to be. That's a great point, Skip. And it it goes back to your point that, that you can understand the book of Revelation, that it's not designed to obscure. It's actually designed to reveal but the way God is choosing to reveal in his own sovereign, creative way is, is yes, that this, this Antichrist is going to be a beast, a, a ferocious monster, that Satan is a fire-breathing dragon. Okay, he's not literally a dragon, but, if, mm-hmm. but we all have the mental image of how scary a fire-breathing yeah. dragon is. Well, yeah. this is the type of how cruel and, – and so you're right. By using the word picture, it's not designed to so you don't know what God is saying. He says, I'm talking about Satan. But it actually illuminates further in a way that, you know, you could write 10 paragraphs trying to describe who Satan is. But when you describe him as a dragon, you're thinking, okay, that guy, that's scary. He's a destroyer of things. He's coming to devour and destroy and incinerate which is exactly true. And so right. one right. word suddenly unpacks a lot. And that happens often throughout the Bible and particularly uh, the book of Revelation, yeah. which is trying to describe hard things. But three quick things. It is a revelation of Jesus. 
what it's describing is who Jesus is and what he's coming back to do. Yeah. Two, we then we learn he's coming back to save people, and we're going to see that a number that can't even be counted are going to be the people that come to faith in Jesus in the end of days and are worshiping before the Lamb of God, uh, before Jesus Christ at the throne of God. Um, that's pretty exciting that we, John can't even count that high. Now you think, well, maybe he's just an idiot. Maybe he didn't go to Sunday school or school. And then you're like, oh, wait, no, here on this other page, he's counting 200 million demonic creatures that are going to attack mankind. So he knows how to count up to 200 million. But what he's saying is the number of people that are going to come to faith in Jesus is a number way north of 200 million. Okay, yeah. that's encouraging. So it's Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to save, but the third point is he's definitely coming back to judge. For those who will refuse him, reject him, every possible way that the gospel is being communicated by normal, regular people, but we learn about two special people that are essentially prophets. They are not named, but they're going to be standing in front of a rebuilt temple here in Jerusalem, preaching the gospel night and day. There's going to be an angel mm -hmm. flying through the sky, preaching the gospel. There's going to be 144,000 Jewish Billy Graham's, Jewish Greg Laurie's, Jewish Skip Heitzig's, preaching the gospel all over the world. So people will have had a chance in multiple ways to hear the good news. But some people are like, I don't care. I'm not going to follow. I'm not going to believe. And there is a cost. There is a consequence to saying no to Jesus. And that consequence is grim. And the book of Revelation, maybe better than any other, describes in vivid language the benefits of saying yes to Jesus and the consequences of saying, forget it, I'm not following you. Yeah. And it validates what Jesus said. Jesus said there's coming a time of tribulation such as has never been on the face of the earth. Well, that gets anybody's interest peaked and you wonder, well, how bad could it be? Right. Well, you wouldn't know how bad it could be until you had the book of Revelation. Then you go, oh, that's pretty bad. That, that's real tribulation. Yeah. And, you know, Skip, I, I, I got to ask you, too, you know, because I think it's really important, you know, and I, I don't think it's bad to have, a, uh, to some degree, a healthy fear motivation. There's a definite reality that people need to embrace, that judgment is part of this. Of course, there's redemption. Of course, there's blessing and there's love at the core of the universe, but there's also this God cannot yeah. tolerate unjudged sin uh, and, right. and, he, and, and he will judge it. And, and this is an important message, but let's go, if you could take some minutes and just talk about the, what is the impact on your congregation when you teach the book of revelation or you just in general teach the, the clarity of scripture uh, for people to read and understand themselves. I mean, do you, do you see an impact? Does it make a difference to do it that way? It does. And um, I get passionate about this because I get to see week by week the change in people's hunger pattern. So if somebody comes to a church where they've been used to a 15-minute sermonette and they come to a, our church where it takes me 15 minutes to clear my throat <laughs> and kind of set up the book or, or the passage, it take, and I, it, I take 45, 50 minutes for a Sunday morning message. Yeah. And then midweek, I'm at an hour, hour and 10 minutes. So what I notice is that people who, who don't have an appetite for that quickly get one and want to know more. And, and so much so that when this last 
uh, go around in eschatology, we're calling it the end is near question mark. I asked my staff, how should I approach this? I mean, I've done this before. And they said, skip, go deep on this. People really have questions. Yeah. They, they hear news reports. They want to know. It, first of all, does the Bible have anything to say? Second, what does it say? Yeah. But go deep. So, man, I did. And, and you know, this last week was, uh, the last two weeks was all about Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog and Magog. And, right. and I assured them, even though it might seem deeper to you, I'm just scratching the surface. Yeah. This could be several months uh, worth of material. But what I notice is people, and I always hang around, they, it generates more questions, which is typical, but they're very thankful and hopeful. Yeah. They're excited because they realize the net result isn't to scare a person. Yeah. It's to make a person ready. And, uh, they, you know, Jesus said, when you begin to see these things, lift up your heads, your redemption draws near. That's what I'm seeing that, occur. That, I was going to get to that because I think that is one of the great outcomes of clearly teaching the word and especially prophecy that there isn't random events happening in some pointless universe. There's actual progress and direction and hope at the end of the universe. And yes, yeah. there are terrible things and yes, there are judgments, but at the end of it all, it gives us a framework to say, if we endure. If we continue to look for and await and pray for his return, there's great promises there. There's great framework to understand the flow of history. I don't know about anybody yeah. who could be more afraid of the future than somebody who doesn't believe there's any rhyme or reason to what's happening. I think that's a terrifying reality for people. Yeah. Random, randomness is not a good theology to live by. No. What you understand in reading scripture, especially the book of Revelation, is history is his story. It's going somewhere. And the net result is God will reveal Jesus Christ clearly to the world as the Savior and as the judge and as the one who's sovereign in charge. Amen. You know, you guys talking about this is reminding me of something that we didn't talk about in the previous podcast about the 75th anniversary of the rebirth of Israel and, and, and why that's important and how do we teach it to young people and others. So let me insert it now, because I think one of the great apologetic points about that God is real and the Bible is true is the rebirth of the state of Israel. So even if you're not looking at all the other prophecies about, you know, the book of Revelation, what, what what's going to happen in the future. I think pastors and ministry leaders, as well as youth leaders and Sunday school teachers are actually making a huge mistake not to emphasize Israel. Why? Because the fact that for 2000 years, the only book on the planet that said that Israel be physically reborn, geopolitically sovereign, that Jews would physically come back from exile all over the earth and physically and literally rebuild the ancient ruins and make the deserts bloom and create this prosperous, secure country is the Bible. That's and right. so we I can't even think of another example of something that didn't exist for 2,000 years and now exists and I'm sitting in it. And mm -hmm. what a great example it is to say, listen, I get that you don't believe that there's a God, and I get that you think the Bible is a bunch of hocus pocus fairy tales and uh, you know and uh, you know unicorns. But I'm telling you, the fact that you see Israel in the news today is the fulfillment of Bible yeah. prophecies that even some church fathers didn't take literally pre 1948. Even some don't take it literally now. But think about it, young people. That you you think there's yeah. not a God that's going to tell us what the future is. 
And when we focus on that and we help people, young people to realize, oh, my gosh. Now, they may not immediately get it. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a cure-all, but I'm saying why are we not using this example of the rebirth right. of Israel as an apologetic case that God exists? He's real. He's powerful. He, he has all knowledge of the future. And the Bible is where he tells us what's going to happen. Boom. I mean, tick, tick, boom. This literally has happened. And if God is right about this, what else is he saying in the Bible that maybe we ought to pay attention to? Sure. To me, this is – I think this is one of Satan's ways of throwing dust and sand in the eyes of senior pastors but also youth ministers of all kinds all up and down the scale to think oh, that's not that's not something – You know, I need to talk about dating relationships. I need to talk about uh, you know bullying. All, all true. There's a lot of things that our young people have to know. But they have to know for starters that there's a God who yep. loves them and who has standards and wants to change them and can be trusted because the Bible really is his word. And if you don't start there, almost nothing else you're going to say is going to work. And so um, I'm looking at the United States from the vantage point of half a world away, and I'm saying, oh, my gosh, America is engaged in a fight right now over the first three chapters of Genesis. Mm -hmm. We're not even getting to Revelation. We're like, is there a God? Is there something called a man? Is there something called a woman? Is there something called a marriage that's a godly institution, not an artificial creation of mankind, between a man and a woman? Most Americans are struggling with those questions. They're having a hard time getting to the book of Revelation. But that's why we need to find ways to help people understand the Bible is real. It's true. And the rebirth of Israel is one of the greatest examples of it. Mm, Okay, I know I just went off on a riff, but I'm sort of (laughs) a little bit passionate about it. That's all right, Joel. Uh, I'm going to give Skip the last word on on this part of the of the our conversation. I feel like we should go on for a third episode here of our podcast. But uh, Skip, I just want you to kind of take what Joel's just talked about and what we've mentioned about the impact of this and maybe draw a, a, a fine circle around this so that we can kind of take it home with us. I'd love to. Um, Israel being back in the land isn't just a sign. I think most people would regard it as a mega sign. Yeah. It is the prerequisite for so much other biblical material. Jesus taught in Matthew 24 about people in Israel and Jerusalem. It's very uh, Israeli-centric, that chapter. I mentioned uh, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. All of these presuppose that there will be a nation called Israel. You know, why bother starting a coalition against a nation that doesn't exist? So it has to exist. And then it has to exist in its homeland, and it has to uh, be relatively uh, peaceful. Um, and that's a whole other discussion. But, you know, you, you have these predictions, and it presupposes that that, that will be the, the condition. It is the condition. It wasn't the condition until May 14th of 1948. That is such an ensign, such a banner uh, event that— um, uh, Joel, to answer your question or to, or to give feedback, I do find people seeing that when when they realize, wow, God predicted it and it happened. That's a game changer. I watched that. I watched it this week. I watched people come to Christ because they saw the stark reality of fulfilled prophecy. Gosh, you look at the first coming of Christ and how he fulfilled almost 300 prophecies at his first coming and many more speak about the second coming. And the idea is if he's got that kind of a track record, what that should lead us to believe about 
what he's promised. Amen. Wow. Amen. Well, I'm very grateful for you, Skip, because you are, you're not a man that, that, uh, grew up in the church and sort of all took this as, well, I guess it's true. Okay. Like, you know, you got radically saved by a God that loves you and that is real and a Bible that is true, that, that really is his word. And it has super tra- changed your life. We ought to put a, a link, Carl, into whatever, Skip, send us what's the link to your sort of long form version of your testimony. Cause we didn't mm-hmm. get into things like astral projecting and other, uh, other, other, uh, <laughs> your curiosities about your, uh, unsaved lost life. But my point is you were radically saved. This was not the direction you were heading in. Your best friend told you this is the truth and you threw him up against a wall saying, don't talk like that. You're right. insane. Get it, right. get away from me. And then, you know, within months, you two had been, you, you would also been changed. And so, and the fact that you, have been changed by the God of the Bible is given you a great passion for the word of God. And you become a very effective teacher. Uh, I have learned so much from you and I've been so encouraged by watching other people be blessed by the spiritual gift of teaching that, that God has given you. And I just, uh, it's one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on the program so yeah. people could meet you if they haven't yet. Yes. Well, it's been my honor, Joel. I have such esteem and respect for you and your ministry. So thanks for having me, yeah. Carl and Joel. Well, it's such a blessing, uh, Skip. And, and Joel, thank you for, uh, as always, great insights into how these things are making a difference uh, in our world today. And and uh, again, I want to thank Pastor Skip Heitzig for joining us on these last two episodes. And we're going to have you back. We got to do this again. I think there's so much more. We haven't even talked about the Old Testament or any of that yet, really. And uh, and again, uh, I know you're, you're uh, so much uh, praying for the ministry that we have here at the Joshua Fund. I want to thank uh, you and I want to thank uh, our listeners if you'd like to come to Israel with us at the Joshua Fund, or if you want to find out more about what we're generally doing there, you can visit our website at joshuafund.com. We love to bring people to the Middle East to understand what God is doing there, to see the things that Pastor Skip and Joel have been talking about this last hour, and to, to truly understand the healing work that we're doing to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. And as always, you can check out our show notes, uh, as Joel's mentioned, for anything you heard on the podcast that you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Epicenter. Hi, this is Joel Rosenberg, founder and chairman of the Joshua Fund, and I've got exciting news. In 2023, I'm inviting you on behalf of our entire board and staff to come to the Holy Land, to come to Israel on the next prayer and vision tour. This is the 75th anniversary of the prophetic rebirth of the modern state of Israel back in 1948. And what is God doing here? It's amazing, spiritually, economically, in so many ways, there's been so much growth, so much progress, but the best is yet to come and we want you to see it we want you to walk where jesus walked we want you to see where the apostles ministered we want you to see where people's lives were transformed by the love of god and the power of the holy spirit we want you to see this city where jesus died and rose again and where he's coming back i hope soon but in the meantime come to israel with the joshua fund you can learn more about the trip the itinerary the cost all the details at joshuafund.com But sign up quickly because I think this thing is going to fill up fast. The Prayer and Vision Tour of Israel in the fall of 2023. I hope to see you there.
Jesus wants our fears to launch us toward faith then he grins and says do you trust me because together we can do this with mornings with Jesus you can start your day in a positive way find hope through inspirational stories and scripture go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for mornings with Jesus you can also download the abide app for biblical meditations at abide.com